So I'm going to take you to a very distant world, uh, Sierra Leone, the grassroots level, and I'm going to report on some data that I collected in 2007 on what the communities have to say, six communities in Sierra Leone on ex-combatant integration and reconciliation. Um, my topic of interest when I went into the field was coexistence and reconciliation after mass violence. So really what I wanted to do was uh, to look at the micro-determinants of social integration of former combatants in a post-conflict country. I chose as my case study the integration of former RUF rebels into civilian life in Sierra Leone. I'll say a bit more about why I did that in the next slide. Um, and I broke um, sort of my work down into the research question which reads rather longly, in what ways do notions of reconciliation, forgiveness, justice, revenge and punishment intersect with the integration process at the community level? Right, so why did I choose Sierra Leone? Um, and I'm only going to comment on uh, these first two points uh, of time reason. Um, I was looking for a country with a relatively long civil war and um, a war that had been conducted with considerable brutality against the civilian population. Um, and my, my thinking behind that was to, to sort of um, have a post-conflict phase where you have um, a stark difference between those who had committed violence and those who had to endure violence for a long time. So that's basically why I chose Sierra Leone, also because it's a English-speaking country, and my French is not very good. Um, but I'll, I won't have the time now to go into um, sort of the case as such. I'll say something small about the root causes of the war. Um, very shortly, if you boil it down, my understanding of the war in Sierra Leone is that there was an economic, social, and political marginalization of the majority of the population through basically two processes. Once were exclusionary governance structures at the community level, so traditional authorities, chiefs, elders, suppressing and abusing their power vis-a-vis -vis the majority of young people. And then secondly, you had a failing and eventually sort of non-existent state, what William Reno has called the privatization of the Sierra Leonean state, um, that just wasn't there for the majority of the population. So the dominant actors in driving a violent confrontation with the system, with the social system, the political system, were, were people who were below 30, 35, and they were the ones um, that started the war, and it was started uh, from the east of the country with an insurgency of um, RUF, the Revolutionary United Front rebels, backed by um, Charles Taylor's, uh, some of Charles Taylor's um, fighters. Right, so yeah, the rest of that I will skip, but I'll be happy to answer questions to that. Um, so, uh, two years ago I went into the field and um, I chose a qualitative um, sort of framework of methods, semi-structured interviews and focus group discussions, which I conducted in six different places to sort of grasp the differences within the ethnic um, communities in Sierra Leone, but also the war sort of spread slowly over the years to these different places, and I wanted to know whether the length of time that people had spent in war meant anything for, for, um, yeah, for peace building. Um, in total, I interviewed 119 respondents 
in a non-representative sample. So it was a snowballing technique of, of um, sampling uh, my respondents, um, but still I think it gives me sort of quite a good overview. And who did I target? Um, mostly I talked with ex-combatants, so ex-RUF, the ex-rebels, and then on the other hand, community members that had not been affiliated with any of the fighting forces. Um, and to sort of round up that, um, that sample, I talked with who I call opinion leaders. Those are police, chiefs, teachers, uh, politicians, so sort of people who um, yeah, lead the community but also have somewhat of an overview of community life. Right, what I'm going to do now uh, quickly is to, uh, in three steps, go through my data first to um, comment on the achievement of peaceful coexistence in Sierra Leone, which has been uh, regarded as a successful piece of peace building. Then uh, ask the question, which factors are responsible for this integration success at the micro level? Um, and the second question will be, what are the characteristics of the state of integration in Sierra Leone and problematize um, this peaceful coexistence thesis a bit? And then I'll end up with uh, conclusions. So, if you talk with people in Sierra Leone, overall you get a very positive view of, of peace, of um, a country that's been through a horrific war, but people are actually, um, yeah, present a positive view of coexistence. So, um, one of the um, focus group discussions I had, um, people there told me, well, there's no error with the ex-combatants, some have their families here, we're living cool and calm. We are working hand in hand, sometimes there are quarrels, but with the help of other youths, they are put in place. We live in peace. We cope without outside help. We do it ourselves. We meet, we drink, we share ideas. I can go to their house, I eat with them, I share ideas with them. And so on. So, very positive. Um, and even, I talked with some others, um, they said, well, you know, the RUF is reintegrated, they've lost the RUF flavor. People interact normally, the tribes are integrated, they're part of the community. And one person, the chairman of a youth organization, even told me, you know, the test really exists if you ask me about the group of people who are sitting outside, I won't be able to tell the difference between those who are ex-combatants and those who are not. So obviously my question was, given the, the Sierra Leone history, which are the factors that are responsible for this integration success, and what are the characteristics of this um, of the state. So question one, what are the factors responsible? And the main, uh, main point I want to make here is what I call uh, the price we pay for peace, namely that what's really striking is how people were longing and desperate for peace at the sort of in the final years of the war and how they really were desperately longing for the resumption of normality. So a chief told me, as long as Kaba, who's the president who sort of led into peace, has stopped the sound of the barrel, we are happy for that. When the barrel was active, there was nothing to do but to save our lives. So integration, as I see it, is a trade-off for peace. And a man who brought home in, in the Broca town, northern Sierra Leone, brought home this point by saying, I'm speaking generally. If someone has committed an atrocity, at any time, when you see that person, at any time you will remember what they have done. At any time you set eyes on them, it does not feel good. But we are doing that for peace. 
So my interpretation is that reintegration rests on a rational decision rather than an emotional one, and fighters were accepted into communities to enable a swift integration and transition to sort of a long-sought peace. So integration is the price people pay for peace. Now, um, this transition was also um, supported by what I call components of peace. I'm not going to go into them, um, but just list them. It, there's the absence of ethnic cleavages, which made the integration process a very individualized process, rather than sort of two antagonistic groups standing there. There's a long-standing tradition of social ties and of family integration. Um, people are very religious in Sierra Leone, so they look up to God to, um, to do justice in the end. And then, of course, there were a host of different institutional interventions on the local and on the international level, which targeted peace building over the last seven years. Right, so we have a state of uh, peaceful coexistence, but what does it really look like, right? What is there? Um, and I'm going to look at conditions for peace, then I'm going to look at the emotions people presented to me, and I'm going to look at interaction between ex-combatants and non-combatant community members. So what do I mean with conditions for peace? There are basically three conditions um, uh, that, yeah, in the country presently, um, that sort of qualify peace. First uh, is what I call spatial discrimination where fighters cannot settle in those communities where they've actually uh, committed large-scale atrocities. So you have a lot of fighters from the east who were born in the east, living in the north now, a lot of fighters from the north now living in the east, and it's really this sort of trade of places um, that people can maybe settle in a community, everybody knows there are uh, but um, they can't settle in a community where they've done bad things. So this limits the freedom of movement and the choice of residence for ex-combatants. Secondly, their daily circumstances. I was in Sierra Leone during the time of the presidential and parliamentary elections, and nobody really knew what was going to happen. Everybody was very tense. It was likely, and it did in the end happen, that the opposition party actually took over from the incumbent government. Nobody knew if the incumbent government would go along with that. With the military intervening, it was a very sort of, yeah, but a very tense um, time. So during that time, suddenly people showed up at um, the police stations, for example, telling the police constable, you know, those and those and those people were with the RUF. If there's any trouble, they're likely to be the ones who are causing trouble. People were pointing at them on the street, saying like, you know, you you stay in place there, you, we're watching you, right? We're seeing you, um, if there's trouble, we'll pick you up. Um, and this is sort of the cycles of tension here when it goes to, you always see it when there's tension, um, ex-combatants are singled out. And lastly, and sort of not very surprisingly, obviously there are individual experiences, and you see a very clear pattern of those who've been victimized more and more brutally during the war of displaying a larger um, rejection to integration. So this market woman in McKinney told me, if I had the power to ask them out, I would ask them out. They have done bad. They caused all the suffering here, killed my husband and my brother. We are living together now. There is no other thinking. But really, I do not want their talk. I do not want to live with them. And people who had sort of uh, confessed that they didn't, that they weren't that much victimized during the war, actually had a much more 
um, yeah, much, that we're much more open to integration. So those are the conditions for peace. Um, from the individual feelings now about sort of coming from the victimization question, my next question was now, how do you feel about these people? What's, um, what's the emotional state of community members? And at the same time, I was trying to explore local meanings of reconciliation. And the term I want to introduce here, or the concept I want to introduce here, is that of cold heart and warm heart, um, which is sort of the Sierra Leonean way of, of putting reconciliation. Cold heart is when the heart, um, which is considered the center of not only feelings, but also thoughts and intentions. So when that is cold, it's not angry or resentful in any way, which it would be if it was warm. And it's really a personal condition that you need to be able to uh, have proper relationships in a community to have with somebody else. Now, to achieve a cold heart after an incident has made your heart very warm, it requires what Sierra Leoneans call forgetting. And forgetting is a process by which you contain memories, by which you sort of suck the emotions out of memories. Um, and the youth chairman of Miami Village explained it to me, saying, it's very difficult to forget because the signs of the war are all around. As long as remembering is not backed up with violence, people forget step by step. Forgetting is when even if they think of the war, there are no emotions. So remembering in the Sierra Leonean context has a very emotional connotation and it returns a person to the state of the scene where they, where the warm heart was created. And I really went through that in my interviews with people screaming, shouting, crying. It really, it really gets them very upset when they return to the remnants of the war. So how do you achieve forgetting? Um, well, the, sort of the two major ingredients are apologies and materialism. Um, and, well, apologies obviously from, from the rebels, from those who did harm. And material assistance, the idea behind this is that it lets you move on, that it lets you build a new life, which will take you away from the state um, where, where harm was done to you. Um, the problem in Sierra Leone right now is that there has been a big sort of lack or absence of apologies from the side of the fighters. And the handing out of compensation has been basically non-existent and uh, even economic sort of reconstruction development isn't really going um, at a very quick pace. So many still harbor a warm heart and if you ask these people about integration, they will actually reject integration and they will call for punishment. And I've put together four answers that are collected in different parts of the country. One woman, a very young woman, said, when I see them, my mind goes back to what that guy, the RUF fighter, did to me at an early stage. Now other people, he, um, he raped her, had a couple of children with her. Now other women, uh, now other people are rejecting me, even my family. When I set eyes on them, I don't ever feel good within myself. A man told me, I develop a warm heart when I see them. They have restored my property, burned down my house. Because I do not have the power to revenge, and suppressing my anger and not happy with them. Another um, woman told me, I'm not happily living together with them. I no longer even want to stay with them. Let them put them all into a tight place where I can never put eyes on them again. 
And the last was um, most vocal. She said, I would prefer if they were punished in the same way that I'm suffering. They should be punished as they have punished me. So a lot of emotions going around these communities. And um, these suppressed, sort of suppressed anger and dissatisfaction um, really surfaces in a very systematic discrimination of ex-combatants in the economic as well as in the social sphere. So um, this uh, goes into employment, um, marriage, um, and even is handed down to the children of ex-combatants. Now the consequences are very real because it means A, that a lot of ex-combatants are even poorer than the average poor person in Sierra Leone. Um, but what I find most wor worrying is that they're very open and very vulnerable to abuse by political elites who draw them in as either ad hoc thugs in, in their conflict with other parties or as irregular security um, sort of party militias. And obviously also the crime rate is, is um, relatively high um, among I mean, those, um, those being criminals are, um, are uh, a lot of them are ex-combatants. Um, jumping to that. So, uh, in 2007, I left the field sort of with uh, the conclusion that there was peaceful coexistence in Sierra Leone on the surface. It was based on a trade-off between integration and peace, that was my understanding, and some components of peace, but that below the surface, integration was really incomplete and peace was very unstable. A lot of people were harboring negative emotions and there was discrimination against um, against uh, ex-combatants. Um, I just returned from Sierra Leone last week, and um, some of the things I've been seeing there aren't really uh, painting a very good picture. There are increased living costs, I mean food and fuel prices have almost doubled uh, in the last two years, at obviously constant income, um, unemployment or underemployment is unchanged high. Um, Corruption is rampant in the government, uh, so much so that a lot of donors have been pulling out their money. The system of patrimonialism is still working, so it's not merit-based, uh, whether you get a job, but sort of which network you're in. And um, more worryingly, uh, the crime rate has gone up significantly, and violent crime, so armed robberies, armed crime is going up. Political violence has been uh, going up. We've seen that six weeks ago with clashes on the streets of Freetown. And it's mainly violence between the two major parties. And um, in dealing with this violence, there's a distinct partiality of the police force and of the judiciary to uh, be on the side of the current government. So this leads me to my conclusions. Um, and I have, yeah, maybe three of them one, two. Integration. So, I see integration as a very long-term process. It's not a project and it's handled as a project by many NGOs and donors. So, integration really requires a long-term monitoring and process and a repeated, sort of repeated and very flexible interventions to, um, to go with communities through different stages of integration in, I would say, at least a decade after a war has, uh, has ended. Um, also, integration I see as a continuously negotiated process within communities, and um, 
one of the um, things I've been thinking about is to interpret this kind of discrimination that's going on on the community level. And what I've come up so far is that I see discrimination as sort of a form of subtle punishment. And it's a form of local justice within communities, within a society that is totally overwhelmed by the request that the government has put forth and the international community has put forth to forgive and forget. And so these discriminatory acts are sort of pathways of venting feelings. Um, on the other side, if you look at the reaction former combatants give towards this, uh, this discrimination, they're actually accepting it. A lot of them keep quiet, they accept that. And so I've interpreted that as subtle acts of repentance and apology. Towards reconciliation, my conclusion is that um, we need to be really careful when we look at the surface of things and consider Sierra Leone as a peace-building success, because the surface hides a lot of tensions and potential for violence. And we need to understand the grievances that are under the surface. We need to look at local paths of reconciliation, understand such concepts as cold heart, and then effectively design interventions. And in the case of Sierra Leone, it has a lot to do with um, we need paths uh, where apologies are given, uh, where the past is confronted, where people can air what they think about the past. But we also need material assistance not only for uh, the reasons that Paul and Anka would give you, but also because it fits within the cultural framework of how people think about peace building, of how people transfer their cold hearts into a warm heart. And lastly, um, we can look at stability and renewed violence. Um, in my understanding, the peace in Sierra Leone is founded very, very much on a rejection of the past. People have very bad memories of the war. But these memories are very transient. You have a very, very young society in Sierra Leone, and the generational turnover and the forgetting of history is, is going like this. So the current situation shows resurgence of violence in the society, and it's very, was very, very worrying is that recruitment of violent gangs, of political violence, is along old command lines, which actually suggests that there's incomplete demobilization. From, from the war. Lastly, the post-conflict phase is always filled from the population with very high expectations of change and progress to address not only what the war has destroyed, but also why the war started, so the grievances from before the war. And those root causes are still within Sierra Leonean society. They haven't been addressed right now. So what we see right now is really growing frustration and impatience, not only on the side of the ex-combatants, but on the side of the population at large. And um, sorry to end on that not so positive note. And thank you for uh, listening.